The following message and support for AHLA is provided by Berkeley Research Group, a global consulting firm that helps organizations advance in the areas of disputes and investigations, corporate finance, and strategy and operations. BRG helps clients stay ahead of what's next. For more information, visit thinkbrg.com. Welcome, everyone, to the second edition of the AHLA Fraud and Abuse Practice Group podcast. My name is Shauna Gates, and along with my co-hosts, Matt Wetzel and Kevin Raphael, we will provide you with a monthly update on hot topics and key stories about the most pressing healthcare fraud and abuse issues in the United States. Each month, we will discuss trends in enforcement, critical updates in the law, and other important topics, and we will provide you with core insights on critical issues and how the government enforces the fraud and abuse laws, potential legislation that can impact how healthcare companies operate and regulatory developments that may have an impact on your business or your clients' businesses. We also hope to share with you practical considerations for companies seeking to comply with the law. Before we start our second podcast today, I'd like to start with introductions. Again, I'm Shauna Gates, Director of Business Development for the Healthcare Disputes and Investigations and Compliance Team at BRG. And the Office of BRG would like to thank Kevin Matt and the AHLA for the opportunity to sponsor and support this podcast initiative. My co-presenter, Matt Wetzel, serves as Vice Chair for Educational Programming for the American Health Lawyers Association's Fraud and Abuse Practice Group. He recently left private practice in D.C. to join diagnostic testing company Grail as Associate General Counsel and Compliance Officer. He's now based in Silicon Valley, and he told me today he just completed the cross-country drive from D.C. to Palo Alto on Monday. So congratulations, Matt, on this new and exciting chapter. Kevin Raphael is a partner in the Philadelphia office of Petrogallo, Gordon, Alfano, Bostic, and Responti. For over two decades, Kevin has represented hospitals, licensed providers, home health care agencies, and other healthcare entities in commercial litigation, government investigations, and enforcement actions, false claims act investigations and litigation, internal investigations, and private and government payer overpayment demands. Kevin also works with corporations and entities in other industries, including food and drug and higher education. Kevin also serves as an adjunct professor of health law and writes and speaks extensively on healthcare and white collar matters. Kevin, I'll turn it over to you now to lead our discussion today about enforcement and recent settlements related to patient assistance programs. Thank you, Shauna. And Matt, thanks for joining us today. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. So, Matt, I wanted to ask you today about patient assistance programs. And just to start, um, there have been several settlements recently regarding patient assistance programs. Can you briefly describe what a PAP is? and why the government has made them an enforcement priority over the past several years. Sure, absolutely. Thanks so much, Kevin, and thanks, Shauna, for the really great introduction. I'm happy to be here for a second second month in a row and hopefully uh, many more to come. But uh, to answer your question, so patient assistance programs and patient uh, advocacy groups, patient assistance funds, uh, we, you know, these are the types of entities that we're going to be talking about today for a little bit. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, these are really nonprofit organizations set up to provide education for patients on different diseases states and treatments, oftentimes very specialized. And, you know, many of these groups can also advocate before regulatory bodies and medical groups on behalf of patients who are suffering from or afflicted with specific disease states or conditions. Others might provide, excuse me, some sort of financial support for patients in need, whether that's covering a portion of the patient's insurance copay or premium 
are providing other financial support to cover things like uh, in-home care or transportation costs. And, you know, really, I think uh, uh, as we think about uh, why the government has made this an enforcement priority or an area of increased interest, you know, what you have at issue here are vulnerable and oftentimes financially needy patients who are uh, 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 frequently Medicare beneficiaries uh, or beneficiaries of government programs who may have a specialized or narrow disease state that has a significantly expensive treatment or cost associated with it. And uh, the government uh, itself has provided uh, guidelines and rules, restrictions for how industry, drug makers, device makers, et cetera, can interact with these, uh, these organizations, these associations, uh, uh, primarily because of that uh, vulnerable patient population and the increased risk for uh, potential kickbacks. Right. So as I understand it, the, the big concern about the PAPs is that it allows pharmaceutical companies or device manufacturers to um, use charitable PAPs to uh, pay for co-pays, which then allows the bill the companies to bill Medicare for the remainder of the high cost treatments. Is that, is that a fair summary? I think that's a I think that's an accurate overview of the risk that the government sees with this area. Right. And it seems that since 2017 or so, there have been a number of settlements that have been announced regarding uh, patient assistance programs. Uh, could you just describe briefly the settlements that have come out in the last several years and the takeaways for uh, PAPs and pharmaceutical companies from those settlements? Absolutely, and and uh, your assessment is spot on, Kevin. So uh, even just uh, as recently as a few weeks ago at the end of January 2020, uh, there was a patient uh, uh, fund or group called Patient Services, Inc. Uh, that agreed to pay $3 million to DOJ to settle allegations that it had funneled uh, illegal kickbacks from pharmaceutical companies to patients. Uh, the uh, Patient Services, Inc.'s website describes itself as a nonprofit organization that provides financial support and guidance for qualified patients with specific and rare chronic diseases. And in short, the organization provides premium and copay assistance and other types of uh, financial support and in-kind support for vulnerable uh, patients. What the government had alleged here was that patient services operated as a vehicle for drug company kickbacks. In other words, um, the nonprofit coordinated with, uh, uh, the, and DOJ alleges, three drug companies here, Insys, Agerian, and Alexian, to enable them to pay for Medicare patients patients' co-pays associated with their drugs, which we know is impermissible coming out of OIG, advisory opinions, special uh, fraud alerts, bulletins, et cetera. And according to the government, uh, what Patient Services, Inc. did or alleged to have done is alleged to have done is to design and operate certain uh, funds with these companies that were designated specifically to cover costs associated with patients taking these companies' specific drugs. So this minimized the chance for the company's contributions to go towards patient treatment or patient costs associated with competitors' drugs, but simultaneously it undermined the contribution status as, quote, bona fide donations. So this is really the latest in anti-kickback statute and false claims act enforcement 
in the area. But even uh, just a few months ago, October 2019, we see the Patient Access Network Foundation agreed to a $4 million settlement with DOJ for very similar allegations here that it paid kickbacks to Medicare patients um, who were purchasing specific medications. Similarly, a patient group called Good Days, formerly known as the Chronic Disease Fund, settled very similar allegations for $2 million. And in both instances, um, the government alleged the same type of uh, conspiracy or, or conspiring with drug makers to funnel kickbacks. Here, DOJ alleged that Good Days had worked with Novartis, Dendrian, uh, Astellas, Onyx, and Questor, and uh, the uh, Patient Assistance or Patient Access Network Foundation, rather, uh, had worked with uh, Bayer, Astellas, Dendrian, and Amgen. Now, interestingly, and, and I, I learned this as I was researching or doing a little bit of research for the podcast today, um, both of these organizations were included on a list in 2019 of the largest 100 charities in the United States with uh, PAMF reporting revenues of $540 million, ranking it as number 38 on that list. Uh, and Good Days is number 89 with a revenue of $240 million. So in other words, we're talking about organizations that have some serious firepower and deep pockets when it comes to the ability to assist patients. And the government viewed its interactions with drug manufacturers, specifically the ones that I referenced, as being a little too uh, close and a little too focused on driving those patients towards uh, the donor's uh, product. So both of these organizations entered three-year corporate integrity agreements with uh, OIG, and they require them to implement measures designed to ensure that they operate independently. Their arrangements and interactions with manufacturers and other donors comply with the HVAC statute. And, you know, in short, that they have the right firewalls in place between the donations that they receive and the support that they provide to vulnerable patients. And Matt, you've discussed some settlements with the PAPs themselves. Are there similar settlements, uh, records of settlements with the pharmaceutical companies who are donating the money to the PAPs? Yes, absolutely. Great question, Kevin. Thank you. So uh, in uh, early 2019, we saw several uh, settlements with drug companies here, uh, Jazz Pharmaceuticals, Lundbeck, and Alexion. Uh, and these three in early 2019 agreed to pay a total of $122.6 million to resolve these sorts of allegations, essentially that they had paid uh, co-pays for their drugs through the Copay Assistance Foundations. Here, Jazz and Lundbeck uh, also entered five-year corporate integrity, corporate integrity agreements that require controls that monitor and promote independence uh, from patient assistance programs. Essentially, the companies need to put together internal controls that firewall commercial operations from charitable giving uh, and patient assistance and support, and also to relinquish all control over their independent third-party patient group's use of independent contributions. In other words, uh, they, they can't have their hands on the funds once they, uh, once they uh, uh, provide them to the uh, patient assistance funds. And, and these requirements in the CIAs really do line up with the corporate integrity agreements for the, uh, the uh, patient assistance funds themselves. So in those CIAs, what you'll see is a requirement 
to comply with all OIG all, all OIG guidance on patient assistance programs, specifically citing, uh, and this might be of note for those of you listening, uh, special advisory bulletins issued uh, in November 2005 and later updated in May 2014. Uh, the fact that they're referenced in the corporate integrity agreements are a real uh, serves as a real signal uh, to uh, to groups paying attention to this issue that those might be some special advisory bulletins uh, to read and understand. Uh, uh, the CIAs also require uh, autonomy over the creation and establishment of, establishment of funds, patient disease funds, including use of donor contributions. Uh, the funds um, uh, under these corporate integrity agreements can't limit support to high cost and specialty drugs only. Uh, in other words, the fund has to support all drugs that FDA has approved for treatment of the specific disease state or even a broader band of treatment. It just can't be a narrower band of treatment than what FDA has approved. Uh, in addition, uh, funds can't uh, provide donors with a link or information or data that would correlate the use of contributions to the use of donor product. And funds have to assist all eligible uh, financially needy patients on a first-come, first-served basis uh, with a uniform process for screening those patients. In other words, preference can't be given to those patients that might already be on a particular donor's drug or might uh, better qualify for a particular donor's drug. In other words, leaving the uh, leaving the um, the medical decision making to uh, the physician. Um, you know, in addition to uh, the uh, May 2014 and November 25, 2005 Special Advisory Bulletin, I'd also point readers to um, a favorable advisory opinion that Patient Services, Inc. had received in 2002 and that was later modified by OIG in 2017. And this advisory opinion really creates um, the similar restrictions or establishes similar restrictions on how the charity can uh, create and operate its funds as we see in the corporate integrity agreement. So as you review all of the related uh, legal documents associated with this issue, you'll see some very common themes about establishing clear bright line rules between donor involvement uh, and uh, fund selection of patients, uh, as well as screening requirements for patients uh, and, and, and the need to for, um, for donors to be really quite hands off uh, once they've decided to make a charitable contribution. So it seems to me one of the big takeaways is that you, the charities can't share information with the donors about which of the patients they helped use that particular donor's uh, pharmaceuticals. Um, is there also a, a sense that the charities need to uh, ensure that they're donating money to a wide variety of patients with that same disease state to use a wide variety of drugs or cures? Uh, yes, that's that's correct. In other words, uh, the fund itself needs to support a broad range of treatment. In fact, if you are a patient that has uh, or is afflicted with a particular disease state or condition, and if FDA has approved, let's say, and, and this is entirely hypothetical here, but let's say FDA has approved uh, 10 drugs uh, to treat that condition, uh, uh, the fund must support all 10 drugs uh, and copays associated with those drugs, not just one or two of those approved treatments that might be offered by uh, a donor or contributor to the fund.
So that raises an interesting point. If there's only one FDA-approved drug for a particular disease state, does that preclude a PAP from forming to assist those patients? I don't believe so. I, I, you know, I, I think I'd, I'd, I'd point to the corporate integrity agreement requirements and the requirements of the special advisory bulletin to demonstrate that the, you know, the real, que- the real key requirements here are that once a donor has provided funds, it has to be hands off. Uh, that the fund itself is is selecting patients who would benefit, is establishing the funds and operating the funds independently and autonomously from those donors. Uh, and um, and so uh, while I don't think that would necessarily preclude it, I think it just really emphasizes the fact that funds in those positions would need to uh, ensure that their controls are uh, shored up uh, uh, solidly and uh, are applied consistently across the board. Great. And I guess the uh, last question I have for you today, Matt, then is, uh, do you see or foresee that the PAPs will remain an enforcement priority in the, in the uh, going forward? I do. And I think on a couple of different fronts. So um, there have been several attempts at regulatory oversight of patient advocacy and support groups, relationships with industry. Uh, In 2011, Senator Grassley uh, and later in uh, 2008, Senator McCaskill uh, sought to apply certain transparency requirements to these groups. For example, in 2011, Grassley uh, uh, requested that key patient support and even medical advocacy groups um, provide information on donations and contributions from drug makers. Uh, if if uh, many of you might recall that, uh, you know, 10 years ago or so, uh, there was a, a couple of years where Senator Grassley had sent, uh, and Senator Bacchus had sent uh, several requests on uh, information about industry relationships, uh, and that converted later into the Sunshine Act, as we all know. Um, and McCaskill in 2018 sought to revise the Sunshine Act to require industry disclosure of donations to patient assistance groups and even medical specialty societies. That effort was unsuccessful, uh, but I think that uh, it demonstrates that uh, lawmakers do have an interest in the area. Uh, I think that if you know, if, if we're thinking about some sort of practical takeaways uh, 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 from this issue, it will continue to be an area of focus, uh, and, and I think it, 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 it will even become even more so as we look at creative value-based solutions and value-based collaborations among different providers in the industry. But if you represent a medical products company, you should be aware of the Kickback and False Claims Act risks associated with these groups, and, 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 and don't be fooled into thinking that healthcare fraud can't be facilitated by nonprofit organizations focused uh, uh, ostensibly on patient rights, treatment, and care, and and, and just be sure to have those important internal controls in place. And then, of course, if you represent patient advocacy groups or patient support groups, you should establish those clear compliance protocols and controls for how you handle donations, how you solicit donations, uh, and be careful to eliminate bias or sway one way or the other. And then, of course, keep the organization's nonprofit and patient-driven mission at the center of operations. And I think that, that you'll be in good shape. But yes, I, I do envision this as being a continuing area of interest, not only for the government, but for the fraud and abuse practice group. And Matt, finally, with the bilateral support for uh, legislation to reduce prescription drug costs um, and the concept that that's a priority 
in the coming year or two. Do you see that that legislation will have any impact on regulating uh, patient assistance programs? Uh, I think it certainly could, especially as uh, regulation of drug pricing uh, requires drug manufacturers, pharmacy benefits managers, uh, pharmacists, uh, providers, uh, you know, everyone sort of in that chain of care to really reassess how they price and establish the value of different uh, drug products and related services that certainly could have an impact on a, a specific patient's copay or premium or uh, or other type of uh, payment needs. And so, uh, so it certainly could have an impact. I think it remains to be seen at this point, but uh, all the more reason to uh, keep the issue on, on everybody's radar screen. Well, Matt, thank you very much for sharing your insights with us today. And we wish you all the best luck and success in your new position. And on behalf of Matt and I and the HLA, Shauna, and we'd like to thank you and BRG for your continued support of these podcasts. It's our pleasure. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. Please stay tuned for next month's podcast. For questions, please access the AHLA Fraud Abuse Practice Group website. 